And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf, for, the, for you don't know this, listeners, but for actually the second time around, Liza Grown Tromby on the Coot Street Podcast. Woo. It's a colossal mess. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's very Coot Street. Hi, Liza. Oh, can I just say, I should have said this at the beginning, I'm really, really happy you're back because Coot Street starts its year by doing two episodes every year. The first episode is our Books to Look Forward to episode, and that's out. And the second one is when we talk about the Locust Recommended Reading List with you. So to nice dive in over Gary, welcome. It's great to have you back. Welcome back. And, and, and we were debating earlier, and we've decided we're just going to declare that this is about, no, this is about the 50th anniversary of the Locust Year in Review issue, which comes out in February. <laughs> It's like the fifty, right? Okay, but the but the actual recommended reading list is fifty-two years old this month, I believe. No, nineteen seventy-one. I looked it up. Okay, no, no, that's the awards. That's the awards, Gary. The the awards, yeah. The year in review is fifty years old. Nobody cares about this but us. Why are we even talking (laughs) about it? It's definitely the fiftieth anniversary of something. It's got to be the fiftieth anniversary of something, basically. and Basically, listeners, yesterday I got distracted and I, I, I began to think, how long have we been doing this this thing? Because Locus has been around for a long time, longer than all of us have been involved in the magazine. And in the early years when it was just a straight fanzine, uh, between about 67 and 71 or two, it was quite small and quite frequent and had all kinds of different things. And there would be like a Locus glances at books and Locus looks at books and Locus doesn't look at any books at all. And there would be a... Hugo Worthy books. And for the, the, first, the first time that I can find that there was a February issue with a year in review article that was, that was then followed by other February issues was the 1973 issue covering 1972. So whilst oh, I, I may not too. really, yeah, uh, <laughs> I was like I was like seven. So right. I, mean, I was just reading science fiction for the first time. So whilst I don't know it to be true, I. think think this is the 50th anniversary of the recommended reading list. Right. I think, I'm, I think we could say that. I think that's fair. You know? <laughs> and, and actually, what it then talks to is something we were touching on before. Sorry to talk over, Gary, but... And that is the contribution of Locus to the science fiction field. You know, mm. uh, Locus successfully just ran an Indiegogo campaign to, you know, to covers some of its costs. It's one of those changes in magazine publishing. You need to do that thing, which we were, which I was going to say was must have been a heartwarming thing to see support and interest in the field, particularly since Locus has been set outside a lot of the other recognition paths Ooh. like Hugo's and stuff's over mm. the last 10, 15 years. So yeah. it's nice to see the fact, the fact that people are still paying attention or aware because the kind of points where other people get to go, woohoo, we exist, don't kind of exist for Locus. Yeah. Well, and that is one of the things, like when the, when they took us off the Hugo list, I was always like, we have a lot of rockets and that, and it, and well, we, we didn't take us off this. They made us, uh, only, they made us land in professional magazine, which doesn't have a Hugo award category. Right. Yeah. And so not being a semi prosing anymore, we sort of dropped out of being eligible for most of the Hugo awards, um, maybe best related work, but we've never campaigned because it's not our style. Um, but um, the thing that I always said that we missed was that thing where you're on the ballot and like everybody in science fiction, at least for a day, is talking about the ballot and it's exciting and people congratulate you and, and people who didn't know about you for any other reason before suddenly see your name and I wonder, you know, like it happens with authors and it happens with publishers and it happened for the magazines. Um, so the Indiegogo was a really nice moment of, you know, um, we reached out to a bunch of authors and said, hey, we're doing this thing. Is there anything you could donate? And people donated books and they donated acts of whimsy and they um, they wrote uh, apologies for ruining readers for their books and they donated deleted scenes that like got things that got revised out of their novels. It was really, you know, like stuff I'd never even thought of. And, and we had so many donations, we extended the the time frame of mm-hmm. it because we weren't going to be able to like we still have stuff and we're like we're we're going to have to do it again obviously because this is the new landscape of publishing magazines sure. yeah. 
Um, but it was, it was really, it was really amazing. And it did feel hard. It felt more welcoming and community and, you know. I, th- I think it, I had the same sense that it, uh, it sort of overcame the feeling that, well, as, as my granddaughter used to say, we were being taken for granite. Um, yeah. and to some extent, that's an appropriate metaphor because there was this sense that Locust was carved in stone and was just always right. going to be there. Um, and, and that predates all of us. I mean, going back to those 1973 issues, the year in review, for example, was, as far as I could tell, I, I have no issues of Locust prior to the 80s, but as far as I could tell, those early year in review essays were simply Charles Brown and his then wife, Dina, saying, these are the books we like this year. And it was completely a personal zine in that sense. Now, uh, yeah. since both of you are more directly involved in putting this together than I am, although I contribute to it, now it's a big deal to get a bunch of people together from different, from diverse perspectives, diverse interests, covering not just what we liked in science fiction, but fantasy and horror and young adult and first novels and anthologies and collections. Tell me how the process, for, tell somebody who's never listened to this annual podcast before, how the process now works of getting all these recommendations together. Hmm. First, there's a lot of, oh, God, we have to do it again. <laughs> yeah, all right. Not me, not me. I'm not me. That. And like, do we have to do it again? It is a, it is a lot of work, and it's kind of fraught because you just don't know because there's a big group of people, and you don't know if they're going to – are they all going to get along? Are we going to be able to do this? How big is the list going to end up being, you know? And we're trying to, in some ways with the the long fiction, it's a little easier because we have a big set of reviewers yeah. that we start with. And then we have some other critics and people who've done anthologies and people in other countries. And we try to put that together. So that's not so bad. Um, and then uh, we do reach out separately to some people about art books and we reach out separately to people about nonfiction books. And I reach out to librarians and look at lists and try to figure stuff out for YA because our YA set is small. And every year we reach out to new YA people and ask them if they will do stuff. And, you know, you just have to keep adding people because they drop off. And people get busy, and it and it isn't a ton of work, but it's a little bit of work, depending on how engaged in it you decide to be. And then the short fiction, I think, is, you know, just I mean, Jonathan does a lot of work to put to put together a group of people that will give us a nice sort of rounded perspective on things. Do you want to talk about? Sure, what you sure. Do? I mean, I mean, the, if you like, to me, the processes for the books and the short fiction are roughly similar in the sense that. You know, Charles used to, and I think you still kind of do, put together as the years go- goes on from the beginning, like from the beginning of January, you're putting somebody said, we did a good review of this book, put it on a shelf just so we don't forget it. Put this one on the shelf so we don't forget it. And the short fiction reviewers are putting recommended lists at the end of their columns each month. So that's kind of the, an equivalent thing. And then that forms like this rough beginning list. And we get like, in the case of short fiction, we get about a dozen and a half people together, including our own reviewers. Uh, from various places and we ask for recommendations from magazine editors and that puts together a big long list like five six hundred stories and then we rinse wash repeat of talk vote talk vote talk vote to try and get down to a list which and this part of it haunts me always you know always omits something great but hopefully gets a lot of what's good right that's the part that I always feel bad about is someone will be like, I can't believe you didn't do this book. It's an amazing book. And I'm like, yeah, you know, there is, there is a, a flaw to having a bunch of people put a list together, you know, and part of that is that you end up with, with the lowest common denominator, not in the, in the sort of derogatory way that lowest common denominators use, but just in that it has to be the books that people in common enjoyed the most. And so it changes the, that set from. But, but you don't want to give the impression, for example, that everybody who read science fiction novels necessarily agrees with every title that ends up on the list. No, we not all, at all. We're all making compromises in this. There are books, uh, <laughs> books that I like that aren't there. There are books. And the thing that uh, strikes me as being radically different from 50 years ago 
is that this is no longer a prescriptive list in the sense of, like I say, one or two people saying, you need to read these books to understand the field because I understand the field and I'm telling you to do this and you need to do it now. Right. We don't do that anymore. And right. in fact, it, it wouldn't be possible to do that anymore. Yeah, it was a lot smaller. I think that if there was a point at which Charles could pretty safely say he'd read everything. You know, and yeah. that that state doesn't exist anymore, which is part of the ga- gather this group together to do it because mm-hmm. um, the just the sheer quantity. I think we had nine hundred and eighty-two titles on the on the list. You know, and like yeah. it, it's not like we got everyone to read all of those things, but and we still, did gather a group of experienced readers and put them to it. You know, yeah. When it comes to the list this year itself, and I think it talks to the uh, jury process, the voting process a little, do you see a difference between the books, the titles that are most most supported in the voting for the, the, the list and what are being read widely in the community? I mean... Uh, when I look at, say, the top, what I remember being the most popular books, for example, uh, there wasn't a lot of conversation out there in the field about The This by Adam Roberts, for example, but, but it was strongly supported by our reviewers and, and commentators as one of the best books of the year. Yeah, it had the highest, if you ranked the votes, and then even within the other title, which is Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel, even between those two hit uh, the this got a higher mm. quality of because there's a there's a mm. gradation in it, um, and yet it's a it's sort of a challenging work. It's not a it's a little experimental and a little weird. It's not a straight ahead story. Yeah. So and I think the same thing with Sea of Tranquility. Like I think both of those books felt a little more experimental and a little. Um, and not a sort of straight ahead. And then like the third one is Red Scholar's Wake by Elliot de Bodard, where you have space pirates. And then you get into something that reads more like a, a, a sort of standard narrative form, but mm. is a great book also. So, but no, I, I do think, I think that there are a lot of books at the top of our list that, well, we have a lot of British books at the top of the list, right? I mean, there's well, I was the, thinking I was, the One line. of the things that I think Happy the list tomorrow. has done a pretty good job of covering are, are some important books published uh, in in the UK that have not been published in the States, uh, that may or may not even right. be available in the States. So, and, and I don't know if the Adam Roberts book was published in the US. I don't think so. It wasn't. In fact, the, we have four books in the top 10 that only came out from Galant's. It sort of speaks to the idea that, and it's not surprising, I think it's all very done, done very openly and unintentionally in a way, that if you ask reviewers and reviewers and commentators to recommend what they think is the best of the year, it'll be the stuff they, to an extent, liked the most during the year. And one thing that happens if you're reading an awful lot of stuff is your tastes change and morph, as we've talked often about before. And maybe you're looking for more of a particular kind of thing than you would have been looking at as a casual reader, because you're looking for things you can talk about and think about. Um, and I think it's interesting, you sort of like John Scalzi's on the list with the Kaiju Preservation Society, which is a really entertaining, but I think John would agree, not overly complicated novel, but it sits there alongside, you know, works like Expect Me Tomorrow by Christopher Priest, Beyond the Burn Line by Paul McCauley, mm-hmm. Sea of Tranquility, which are quite different. So it's interesting there's this dichotomy because isn't – well, I, I feel like there's always that sort of feeling like the Locust Awards are the first salvo in the award season of these are the interesting titles to talk about. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, we're at least in February. We've got that on our side. But, yeah, I mean, it's still something that that is – we're sort of one of the first, like – here's the list, but it's, we're not just looking at the best of like the other lists that come up the PW best of and the Amazon yeah. best of and all those. They're like, this is the best of the year. It comes out in November or December. Like, I don't even know how they know what the best of is in December because they haven't seen the December books. But I think that the locust list is a little different because we are like, here's the list. We are looking back at the year and we are looking forward at the awards. And so it's not just, this is what happened last year, but it's like, this is what happened 
that last year, let's look at the Locus Awards and they're going to be followed by the Hugo Awards and the Nebulas are right in there and then World Fantasy. So what, you're making a face. Well, was I making a face or was John? I don't know. Jonathan has got a, like a very look. <laughs> Nobody else can see it, but I Nobody can see it. See it. <laughs> I, was, I was going to suggest again. that... Jonathan's uh, gone again. Is, is it your sense that that the Locust Recommended Reading List has more direct impact on the Locust Awards than on other awards like Hugo and World Fantasy and Nebula? Well, I think, yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a natural. Well, one of the things I was going to mention in the fantasy list, one of the things that as I've talked to people and looked at the comments coming in, that seems to be a broad consensus this year is Nicola Griffith's Spear. Everybody yes. seems to be really impressed by that. Yeah. And I think those of us who have read it would love to see it on all the awards ballots. So to some extent, and, and it's it's uh, not a long novel. I think it got a lot of good uh, reviews when it came out, but I'm not sure that it's a widely popular novel. I don't know. Right. It certainly is terrific. No, I, I think that, uh, Spear probably got the most, this was the novel of the year for me, comments, I think, in uh -huh. our year in review and all that things. Jonathan, is your mic working? No. Jonathan's mic is apparently <laughs> not working. Jonathan's John mic was muted. No, Jonathan's <laughs> probably a mercy for you all. <laughs> I, I almost said this. Uh, this was a horrible <laughs> thing to say. I'm, I'm watching the, uh, the, the 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 little graph along the bottom of the screen with each, and I thought I almost said Jonathan is flatlining, and I thought I that would be a bad thing to say because actually it's only his microphone. <laughs> well, let, let me just say, Gary, you're saying that you're asking do, does the recommended reading list influence the Locus Awards. Yes. And Liza, you are indicating yes. And the first thing is, if your work makes the recommended reading list, it gets a mechanical advantage in the sense that it's on the pre-filled ballot already. True. And that, so that's going to have an influence and yeah. you couldn't say it's not. And also, you know, we've just published a full issue of a magazine talking about how important these books are and how worthwhile they are, you know. I will say that, I mean, I think it's interesting to see how Locus's overall reading and reviewing group have talked about books. I mean, Spear, I've seen, talked in all the, you know, the top books of the year kind of summations. I've seen very, very passionate, and this is also one of my very favorite books of the year. Um, I've seen very passionate talk about a book like, say, Saint Death's Daughter by Claire Cooney. And it's interesting that, say, a book like... Um, Babel by R.F. Quang, which is on our list um, and was well-reviewed and is towards the top of our list, um, joins an overall general community you know, recognition of it. Yeah. So I'm trying to work out what the question in here is. Um, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I, feel, I, feel like, I feel like in some ways I feel like the fantasy, glancing at it now, the fantasy recommendations are a little closer to what I see spoken about in the general community than science fiction ones. And right. what I was going to ask, yeah, sorry, Gary, we can say something, Gary. No, no I, was just, I was just saying, right. I actually wonder if our, our science fiction reviewers are just a little more rarefied that they've just read so much. And you know, like you said, it sort of, it changes what you want to read. Yeah. Um, well, I would make an argument, uh, which is pure, getting into genre arguments again. That fantasy is more of one. Th for, science fiction is more one thing than fantasy is. When yeah. we're talking about fantasies, we're talking about Arthurian fantasies. We're talking about Hollywood fantasies. We're talking about mythological. We're talking about a bunch of genres that are lumped together under this uh, uh, broad. Uh, and in science fiction, we still have a kind of working definition uh, in the magazine for what science fiction is. And it's not without getting into details. It's it's what most people think of as science fiction. So, so for well, example, like you can put your, you can put science fiction in your fantasy, right? But if you put fantasy in your science fiction, it knocks it out into science fiction. So, exactly, and and, and so that becomes a problem. But, uh, but but one of the things we've never tried to do is to actually rank the titles, um, which is actually the best of the year, which gets the most support, and so forth and so on. The Locus Awards poll eventually will do that among among readers, I suppose. Yeah, but my and point we do being, encourage people on the like, oops, sorry, on well, the does ahead. this impact the Hugo Award or the Locus Awards? 
we do encourage people at this point to use the write-in because I think it also helps us find out or pay attention to people that maybe we weren't seeing as much. But like last year, um, it was uh, Shirin Jay Zhao's book got really high in the top 10 and that was a write-in. And I'm going to forget the name of the title itself from last year's recommended list. Um, But was like number three, I think in the end. And, and that was actually kind of good because in the past I've been like, Ooh, it's, you know, hard as a write-in to beat somebody who's already in this. That said, we've got 28 science fiction books and we have 28 fit or 28 fantasy books. These are not small lists. If you go and look at, you know, the other lists that are out there, which I do do to to see, you know, what kinds of books are showing up on both lists. Um, Most lists are are 10 or 12 books and that that might be the best science fiction and fantasy books of the year. You know, we're going, we have a much larger set. And so I think it's, it's not that exclusive of the club at this point. And, but I do think, Jonathan, you're right. I think that our science fiction list is more different from other science fiction lists that I have seen best of than the fantasy. If you look at the fantasy yeah. list and you go and you look at the, the best of the year fantasy list that other venues do, I think there's more commonality between those than there is for our science fiction. This isn't supposed, this is just based on me skim reading the opening essays that you and the locus head office team have worked on but i noticed as a, and i'm curious about trends everybody asking me about trends i never know what to say and i honestly don't expect you to know particularly more than as a general observation but i noticed that when it comes to the number of books that locus says it's seen in a year we're now seeing twice as many fantasy novels as science fiction novels i mean i think the uh opening to the um to, to the issue says that we'd seen 285 science fiction novels, 590 fantasy novels, and 229 horror novels. That feels kind of consistent with what's been happening lately. But do you and feel it's like been the world- an upward trend on an upward trend for fantasy and a downward trend for science fiction for at least the last few years? And it's something we've sort of seen on a larger scale over the last decade, but you know, sort of counting off like, oh, it's 30 down again, or it's 40 down again this year, and it's down again, down again. So, um, and I don't know how much of that is um, that that thing I just said, where if you mingle science fiction and fantasy, it tends to land in fantasy for us as a categorization, not a rule, but how we would look at it. Um, If you have a, a haunted spaceship, you know, what is that? Or, you know, if you have magic sure. happening, you know, in an alternate timeline, you're, st- you're, you're still landing things in fantasy. So as the genres blur, for our categorization purposes, more things will show up as fantasy. Yeah, which I would imagine it's, a, a, it, it just <laughs> illustrates the point I was making earlier, which is that fantasy is not one thing. Fantasy is something that we kind of lump a lot of things into. And if you're right, if, if we can call them science fiction, some of the science fiction novels, I'm sure, have horror elements in them. Some of the fantasy yeah. novels do. But but fantasy is not clearly a genre in the way that science fiction is. And that imbalance of the overbalance of fantasy published during the year compared to science fiction goes back at least a couple of decades. Uh, because I remember noticing this practically the first time I was writing one of these year in review columns. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, but I do think that one of the other things that we see, and I hate to talk about trends also, somebody said to me, what if you wrote an article about the state of science fiction? And I was like, well, that's like saying, can you write an article on the state of the world? I mean, that's a big, that's not a like, I'm just going to toss this out. Sorry. No, I'm in an interview. Is it desperate? Oh my gosh, teenagers, sorry. Um, and so, um, what was I saying? Oh, that uh, fantasy. That fantasy is also a much bigger grouping than it used to be. Like, the, mm. you know, it is not just Arthurian legend. 
you know, and, and honestly, fantasy never was just that. But I think that our the breadth of stuff that we're seeing and the things that are being published in English now is changing. And so it is a much bigger uh, pool that we're looking at. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think, yeah. I, I think so, that's true. I don't know. I mean, uh, Gary talked a little bit about how the the range of fantasy settings is so much larger than it used to be. And that we're just seeing, we're seeing so many different kinds of fantasy works. And, and it's got Which to also different. be a byproduct of book sales and what publishers think they can make money on. I mean, mm. when I go and look for review copies for books, when I look on Edelweiss, for example, which is one of a, a, a place where you can get advanced review copies in advance if you're doing that, uh, typically there's twice as many fantasy titles as science fiction titles. You know, So for all that space operas, particularly in space adventures and some variation, remain popular, it does feel like harder science fiction has a harder time of it these days. You know, I mean, I, I note, for example, Greg Egan just released his second self-published novel, which wouldn't have happened a decade ago. It would come out from a trade publisher. And this isn't necessarily a terrible thing. Uh, and I mean, this, this comes hand in glove with what appears to be, and I don't know enough about it, and I don't honestly don't think anyone, you know, I'd be curious if you've got any thoughts on it at least, um, a bit of a renaissance with horror, which has come up with Paul Tremblay being successful, Stephen Graham Jones being successful, and then with Tor launching Nightfire, and all of that rolls into these, you know, sort of more titles showing up on our list and a very healthy looking horror category. Yeah. No, I think, and I think that people are less scared of publishing horror. I mean, maybe it's not mm -hmm. scared, but I think that there was some, some sort of hesitation around about around horror like i heard you would hear it from editors like oh this goes too dark or this or that and i think that that's gone i think people are really excited about horror. you see a lot of crossover with um different kinds of authors that are writing things that are being classified as horror and whether or not that was where they intended it to land that it's definitely showing up there um I, and that's I, sorry, go ahead. no finish your thought i'm sorry no no no, no. I'm oh, I, I would make an I, argument. I've tapered off to nothing here. We're good. <laughs> okay, make an argument which may not add up to anything. My sense now is that horror, uh, the, the, collect, the connection between literary horror and the horror you see in movies and on television is much closer than it is between fantasy literature or science fiction. In other words, horror is, now you mentioned Paul Tremblay, for example, and I think the new M. Night Shyamalan movie is a Paul Tremblay novel adapted. Yeah. You have things like Stranger Things, where there you can see copies of, for example, in one of one of the episodes of Stranger Things, I've been told you can see a copy of King and and, and Straub's The Talisman in the background. So there's there's a lot of adaptation going on. There's a, and whenever there's a media franchise, that's going to increase book sales, and I think that's done a lot for horror fiction, probably in the last couple of years. It's much. Fantasy is a lot of fantasy on the screen, but it's all franchise fantasy. You know, no, nobody is adapting Marvel movies from a fantasy novel that pre-exists outside the Marvel universe. Right. Uh, science fiction movies are still very risky unless you have a gigantic budget, and then it tends not to be based on a literary source. So my argument would be that right now, in the last couple of years, uh, media such as film and television and gaming have done more for horror than they have done for either fantasy or science fiction. Right. And some of it is, is, is probably budgetary. And some of it probably right? is budgetary. Like you, you can, can just, make... just do that. You can do that. It's, you it's... can do atmospheric horror. You can do sort of, you know, smaller scale special effects. You're not in space. Well, you can do you don't have to do magic, you know, so. It's, it's, it's a Blair Witch Project effect. You can, you can do an effective legendary horror movie for what was it, $16,000 or something? Right. Um, so. Yeah. And, and, and you can even, even a science fiction film, I've not seen it, but the one with the robot the doll thing. Um, Megan? Megan, yes. Um, that is a science fiction movie. It's a horror horror movie sort of semi-disguised as a science fiction movie, I gather. It's yeah. an AI movie, but it's really about another crazy murderous doll. Right. AI gone wrong. <laughs> and I have to say, this year, I, I saw a lot of AI 
And also AI in roles that I didn't, like, I guess I sort of think, you know, oh, well, AI will be, you know, developed by governments and then it'll become this sort Mm -hmm. of like planet controlling, like a resource managing, whatever kind of entity. And, and I've read a few things where AI were personal companions, Mm -hmm. which I think is kind of an interesting Thing. It's sort of like the way that, that you have the little robot dolls and the, mm. and the robot dogs that come up and, and they're your friends. It's sort of like more of that application, which we have seen in the past. But really, there were a couple novels where it was just expected that you would have this sort of the, the role of the imaginary best friend, only they're your AI and you name them. And I can't remember the... The stories where they had them, I think uh, a mountain, the mountain and the sea, they had AI companions as like best friend companions. These are the people you're going to talk to when you have a problem. Yeah. They're like significant others, basically. And um, I'm trying to remember what the other. There was something else where there was like a really parallel thing where the AI were, and I think in some some of that is. Probably a, a you know a a product of us all being locked down, not being able to see each other. Possibly, I don't. Yeah. You know, like I, all of my friends are in my computer. You know, underlines. We're getting a little bit away from the, but it underlines what I was saying earlier. It's so easy. In fact, it's way too easy to turn an AI story into a horror story. Yeah. Um, I mean, essentially, I think it was interesting. I don't think the two books that I'm thinking of, either of them, the AI are a horror. If anything, they just sort of seem like a crutch, yeah. you know, which is sort of like useful until you should let go of it. And then if you don't, then it is a problem. But it is easy to turn. And I mean, certainly we saw a lot of uh, sentient spaceships. And um, I mean, I think the Ali, the de Baudard had a, the, the, the did it have, yeah. didn't it have a romance with a sentient pirate it's spaceship? Basically, it's basically yes. a romance. <laughs> uh, and yes, it does. And, and, and it, was, it was described, and it's described on uh, the, the blurb, I think, as, as a lesbian romance, but one of the partners in the lesbian romance is a spaceship. And that right. raises a whole question about gendering spaceships, which I really don't want to get into because I have no idea what I'm talking about. But it, right. it, And it turns into a space opera in the second half. But yeah. Clearly, there are relationships between artificial intelligences and humans throughout the history of science fiction. And uh, right, I just feel like I'm seeing a lot more of it. Like I saw a lot of it this last. Yeah, yeah. Well, I do last... think it's true that you know AI telepresences, drones are you know are one of the two streams of science fiction thought that are happening now. That and as always these days, the Anthropocene. So you see a lot of it and it stands out. And you're right. And there's always been a thing in science fiction, whether it's been in books or on television or in film, that there is the AI pal, the robot pal. And what it kind of is, is it's the the writer saying, I want to be able to extrapolate some element of a, a human character into one place over here so I can then examine and interact with it in some way. That tends to be kind of how it's used quite often. I am curious to ask a question which has been on my mind as well lately, which is there's a whole bunch of things the Locus uh, uh, Recommended Reading List recognizes from, I think it's four or five different novel categories through collections and anthologies and blah, 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 blah. Do you have a favorite category? Hmm. Um, Personally, I like science fiction. Yep. <laughs> that's I mean that's I've always sort of had like I I read science fiction first and then horror and then fantasy but the horror tends toward weird fiction and the fantasy tends toward weird fiction so it's they're not they're not that far apart uh um and so the category that I like the most as far as like my own reading is science fiction mm. but to build the list the most fun category is the art section because we get all of the art books that we can find and we Karen Haber helps us and Arnie Fenner helps us and we reach out to people we look at lists and we get as many of our 
artists that are working in the field, any of their books. And we get uh, illustrated books. So it's not all just art books in the definition sure. of this book about an artist or about a set of artists or like like Spectrum has is an anthology art book or um, but the other ones. But we get them all together and we sit down and we look at them all. And it's this mm. sort of really amazing day of getting to sort of ap- appreciate everything all at once together, getting yeah. to look at the Tanuko Wycraft book, getting to look at um, the different sort of the art of John Harris, the art of Ron Cobble, these different things. Um, San Julian's book came out as a Spanish artist. Infected by Art is an amazing book uh, anthology that comes out every year. Um, Sean Tan's Creature was is this gorgeous book. Um, and just getting to see them, they, the work, they are so amazing. And while I do see the art books a little bit, I don't get to sort of slow down and really enjoy them and try to take them in and compare them to the other books and see what the quality of the the actual reproductions are and the quality of the text and the index. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. And there's a really big, like the the range of where you start and where you end is immense we have a lot of self-published books in there in fact the uh one of them is this small um it's a small work self-published by i think it's the ed binkley called incognito and in comparison to some of these other books it's a tiny volume but it just shows that there's artists out there doing really interesting work and like this guy just self-published his own thing and did such a great job of it and we had to recommend it so that's more answer probably than you thought you were gonna get <laughs> but, but I do you really- well yeah. let, let me ask a couple of questions about how the list is divided because i've been asked this and i i don't always know the answer we have in novels we have two categories that theoretically overlap with the other categories First novels and young adult novels. The young adult novels, mm-hmm. some of them are science fiction. Uh, the first novels, some of them are science fiction, some are fantasy. The question I get is this. Would a young adult novel on that list or a first novel on that list have been on the best science fiction or fantasy mm-hmm. list if we didn't have these well, right? categories to dump them into? Well, like I think I think the Ray Naylor book probably would have been The Mountain of the would have been in the science fiction section, um, and and actually this year I have I have a note to myself like a couple of weeks before we went to print, saying can we put categories next to all the young adult and first novels this year? Like just have like an H or an SF or yeah. whatever, just to because it's almost not fair because there's just a list of titles and you have to go look it up. But we had a, another little emergency in that we lost our fonts and we had to try new fonts. And I was like, I can't, I can't make action do it. It'll be, I'll break somebody if I do that maybe next year. But yeah, yeah, I do think, and I don't know, you know, sometimes I feel like I wish we could, I mean, we could, we can do anything we want, but like, I, I wish that we did mark things somehow. Like this was really a standout. This is really the one, but at the same time, we're recommending all these books. You know, they're all there for a reason. This, the reasons aren't all the same. I certainly think that in any given year, uh, you'll find that the top two or three or four first novels of the year would have made and even won the main category had they been in it. I mean, you mentioned quite correctly, I think, The Mountain and the Sea by Ray Naylor, which is one of the outstanding science fiction novels of the year and was widely applauded in all kinds of different places and could easily be a very, very significant contender there. I think the same is true of a book like The Ballad of Perilous Graves, the Alex Jennings book, uh, the Sequoia Nagamatsu book, How High We Go in the Dark. R.B. Lengberg's The Unbalancing, um, Sim Jamnia's The Bruising of Kula. These are all books which have been in the main discussion in their categories before you get to, well, my favorite category in the Locus Awards, the first novel. So I think it's just really interesting. I mean, the reason I like the kind of split we have is I think it also really highlights those first novelists, even though in some cases they're people we've known for a while because of, you know, their non-novel length work. Right. 
I mean, like, no, uh, I, if, if you look, I mean, uh, Neon Yang is there for the Genesis of Misery, which is an yeah. outstanding space opera uh, and may well have been in the main science fiction type, uh, group. But also, I mean, we've known Neon for some time with their with their shorter fiction. And Ray Neal has been writing no, I think- stories for quite a while. Short stories, yeah. Short stories, yeah. No, I do. I think that some of it, you know, maybe we should add those designations to all of these to just give people a little bit more information in there. Um, by the time we get to actually laying it out into the magazine, we're all so tired of it. I mean, not in a bad way, but just like it's just an endless well, number is, of corrections. I'm just giving you my reaction as a reader when I got them. Actually, I got the online. But the first thing I do is look at, at the list of science fiction novels, and I realize the mountain in the sea isn't there. And then I realized, oh, wait, it's a first novel. But I could see somebody getting outraged at what they thought this, what might very well have been the best science fiction novel of the year. It doesn't show up on that list, yeah. but it does. And the, the obvious question, the other part of the question, uh, is that since we're dividing science fiction and fantasy and horror into separate categories, in novels, why don't we do it in other categories as well? Um, why don't we do it? Because life's too short. It would be a nightmare. I know it would be a complete nightmare. Jonathan's head will explode if I even go on with this line of questioning for another second. <laughs> I know. Well, the novellas are in there. And okay, so another favorite section, though. I mean, honestly, there are. You can't like novellas and collections. Uh, collections is great. Yeah. I love the collections because then you just have these. Yeah. You know, this is a place where we really can look at some of our short fiction writers and celebrate them in a way that they maybe don't show up because, you know, they're not doing novel work or their novels are a lot slower, but they have a body of work in short stories. And so I, I do think um, our our collection section is always kind of amazing. And and I wish I actually owned all of those books. <laughs> but, but then the novellas, now I feel like novellas are a really strong, uh, uh, because they're being, like it used, it used to be like, are there even any novellas? And now there are so many. And they're getting into, into the Riverlands by Nevo, got more votes, I think, than any other title on the list. Mm. I think that that book has more, I'm checking. I'm looking. Yeah. Has more votes than any, well, although I'm not going all the way down into the short fiction, so I could be wrong. But certainly up to that point of the longer uh, standalone works, that book has the most votes. Yes. Of all yeah. So, and, and, and I think it's a really strong, you've got, uh, you've got another Alia de Bodard, you've got Vicky Chambers showing up in there and C.L. Polk and Kelly Robeson. You also have like Sam, well, Sam Miller, Sam Miller, I think sometimes he has broken through into long fiction, but he had such a strong uh, career as a short fiction author before. And then uh, Mary Rickards in there. It's just a great. Well, I guess, I guess the question, another question related to that is apart from the contributions of tour.com and online fiction, do you think that novellas have become prominent because so many of them are books? You mentioned Mary Rickard, for example, or, uh, Saad Hussain, uh, all these are available as books as well as online, which makes them, I don't know, more visible, something more you're more likely to pay, less, less Doubly ephemeral, signable. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think, sorry. Jonathan, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think you're, I was just going to say, I think you're right. And I also think that, especially as somebody who sees a lot of these books, that novellas are a very digestible size. Yeah. Like they're, they're a great size for a story. They're a great size for a story. There's enough room for a, a twist and maybe a subplot. If you don't go t- too far, you know, and you can, you can do a lot. Um, it's such great territory for, and I think if you look at these writers, most of them are short fiction and long fiction really works yeah. with in here, you know, and uh, it's such a great space for that. But Jonathan, what were you going to say? What I was going to say is what you see with this list, because there are many places that novellas are published, right? Novellas are published as standalone books by both mass market and small presses. Uh, they're also uh, published in magazines online and in print. Uh, and you'll see a lot more standalone books here rather than um, 
print uh, than the magazine short fiction. There's a couple of examples on our list from FNSF, from Clark's World, which is great. But what you're seeing, I think, is the uh, the impact of having individual marketing behind each title. You know, when a novella is published in a magazine, in Asimov's, in FNSF, in Analog, in Clark's World, all of whom regularly publish novella-length fiction, it doesn't get promoted as a standalone, as in, in its own right, to the readership. Whereas, you know, if you're published by Subterranean, by Tor.com, by PS Publishing, by Solaris, by Saga, those companies are actually promoting those as standalone things. And I think there's net, we're now, I mm-hmm. don't know what it's going to be, it's five years, maybe 10 years into a strong push for these small books, which were long talked about as being digestible and easy to consume. So you've got these marketable things. And we do have a thing still trying to work out how we uh, we bring that the, the magazine-based novellas back into this more. But you're certainly seeing the willingness to consume shorter stories. And the benefit for that, I think, and it's highlighted by Into the Riverlands by Nevo, is that you get a, an author who, and if I recall Nevo's bibliography correctly, and he started with, an, with the first of the novellas in this series before going on novel-length yeah. work, right? Uh, just as there have been a few, a few other examples of either someone. You've got Martha Wells rejuvenating her career through novellas before back to, going back to novels, and people had great success. I mean, although she was a successful novelist before, uh, Nettie Okorafor having great success with, with novellas. What you're seeing is you can build a readership uh, through novellas and then take them into um uh, novel length work. And what you're also seeing is you can build longer stories through sequential installments. I mean, you've got um, uh, Sean and Maguire, who's now six or seven or eight installments into a novella series. This is, I, th- I think, the Nevo right. series is like four novellas long. Uh, there are three of the Neon Yang ones. Three so you, the, you're getting that. The so there's, there's the new a really vibrant kind of area. I mean, they're new paperback. Where it's yeah. affordable and you can read it quickly and it builds a readership. Absolutely. And even more so digitally where it's, you know, it, the, the closest thing right now to an old paperback in some ways is a $3 digital copy of a novella because it's still right. kind of cheap. You could you can say, do I really want to read insert title here? Oh, I can just try it because it's not like going to be the end of the world in terms of money. Whereas if you're paying for a $25, $27, $30 hardcover, it's something you're maybe a bit more reluctant to do. And it does seem to me. You can still stick it in the back pocket of your pants because it's in your phone, right? Like you remember (laughs) sticking those old paperbacks in the back pocket of your jeans when you were walking home from school? That's why they were called pocketbooks back in 1939. Right. That's as close as as you can get it now, I think, is one of those novellas in your phone. Okay, here's here's a question that's related to to the length of things. Because with the popularity of novellas, both as online fiction and as standalone and books you can carry in your pocket, um, and the popularity of big, fat fantasy trilogies. I'm looking at the fantasy books I've gotten to review, and some of them, one was 800 pages, uh, 500 pages, 600 pages, and frequently the first of a duology or a trilogy. With this bloating of fantasy novels and the shrinking of fantasy and horror and science fiction down to novella size is the kind of mid-length novel just beginning to disappear what happened to the 250 page novel when you could read in two days right. instead of one is there still yeah, a i don't know i actually saw i saw the um the advanced copy of the new samantha shannon book and it's easily th- three and a half four inches thick um, but then I opened it up, and it's kind of laid out like a loose mass market inside. It has been bloated through layout, and I was like, "Why would they? Why would they turn it into this book that you have? To, it needs its own backpack. Like it's not. Why would you do that? It at the production level, right? Um, and I don't know if that is that." They think readers they want readers want to immerse and they want to immerse for yeah, three weeks. That's my question, right? That's they don't want to buy the book and then be done and just be like, and and now I have to go buy another book. Right? They want to buy the book and and dive in for a long time. I don't know. 
I, I will never understand it because I like a 300 page book. So I, well, I grew I up do. reading those things. I, it's, it, it's as though the hospitality industry said you can have two day vacations in Bali and it'll be wonderful. Or you can spend six months in Hawaii, which will also be wonderful. And what if I just want to go somewhere for a week? That's what I'm asking. That's all I'm asking is give me a week-long novel. <laughs> the fellows are just a weekend away with a special friend. <laughs> and there's like, which, which is nice, you know. And look, hey, one of the nice things quite often, though not always, about first novels uh, is they're that. I mean, whether you, you, you talk about a light read like um, Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry, which is 300 pages or so, the Genesis of Misery by Neon Yang, whether you're talking about Ray Naylor's book, The Mountain of the Sea, these aren't big, long books. I mean, in fairness, nor are the, this or uh, Sea of Tranquility. Right. There are a lot of here, or, or, or Siren Queen. In fact, that's an interesting... Huh. Huh. That's interesting. The most popular books in every category that we have are all shorter. Just noticing. Mm. Just, just something crossed my mind. I wonder if that reflects the time that reviewers have to spend to read things. Well, the there is book. that part of it, right? It absolutely <laughs> does. Real thing. Like, do you have time in a month to read yeah. two? Like, how many 1,200-page books can you read? <laughs> in a lifetime. Like, <laughs> so like somebody said, you, don't, you just read the first four chapters. And I was like, well, you can't review a book if you just read the first four chapters. So... Well, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily. It has nothing to do with the quality of the book or the interest of the book. One of the books which I'll be reviewing in, I guess, the March issue, is the best of Catalinti, which is eight hundred pages, and it's eight. But it's Catalinti. I mean, right. most of it is terrific. But frankly, if right. you've got an eight hundred book, eight hundred page book, in front of you, and a deadline of seven days from now, you're going to start looking for novellas really fast. <laughs> right. I'm not saying that I've noticed this well, in the review columns, but kind of I have. But I used to, I used to, to read, I used to read a couple of science fiction books and then I'd be like, I need to read a YA book because I don't want to, I, I like need something that's going to go by quickly and yeah. YA just used to be, you know, and you would get these big fat science fiction books as they started to get bigger. And I'd be like, I need to write away, uh, read something that I can just get through. Of course. You know, that you get, you get that feeling of, of success at the end of it. Like, aha, I read another book. <laughs> it always but, used to be for me that any time yeah. Jane Wolfe had a new novel out, I would read a Terry Pratchett book first because I needed to get up to speed, right, <laughs> yeah. to read through the Jane Wolfe book. I don't want this to be unfair, but, I mean, one of the questions you get asked, like, is was it a good year? Was it a bad year? You know, like it was a year, right? And I think how, how good or bad that year was depends on how it was for everyone but I'm <laughs> really <laughs> really yeah, if you need to take shelter just let us know really no, no it's we have they happen they happen all the time right so, okay well just, well no not a little but, but <laughs> what i'm gonna ask you was setting aside the question of whether it was a good year or a bad year and knowing that locus they're putting together the annual recommended reading list is both a joy and an enormous job. Right? Do you, just glancing back casually at the year, were there any particular books you enjoyed the most as a reader yourself? I, uh, I, well, I really liked the mountain in the sea. First of all, yeah. the, that one was, um, that one had AI and it had sentient octopuses and it had, uh, you know, marine biology and um, it had the like the main one of the main characters is a a sentient robot or I I don't know remember how they designated him, but um, so that one I really enjoyed. It was it kind of hit all the the science fiction beats that you want where you feel like you learned something and there was a sort of character development and there was some peril and there there were pirates basically <laughs> somehow in there and um I thought that was really interesting and they had they had if not a sentient ship at least a self was that 
the the fishing vessel was that a yeah. Gary was that yeah yeah the, it wasn't uh, really sentient but it was self running um, and then ugh, there are so it, many things it was also okay. full of clever little literary jokes like I think the fishing vessel was called the Sea Wolf after an old yeah. Jack London novel and that sort of thing. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in it. Um, I guess I was I trying to think. There was. Uh, you, do you have another one? I was I was going to throw one out. Oh no! Throw one out! Throw one out! Well, actually, what I was going to say, and I said this in, in the column I sent in, there are two things I like. One is being surprised by something I didn't expect, and the other is not being surprised by something I did expect. And let me explain that. The, the two books that caught me completely off guard this year were Kelly Barnhill's When Women Were Dragons, which I thought was just yeah. terrific. That was the other one I was going to say. Okay, cool. All right. Um, <laughs> because I started off, it's one of those things you read the blurb on it and say, this, this can't possibly work. And it works beautifully on all kinds of levels. It's a historical novel, a coming-of-age novel, and yeah, it's a dragon novel. And the other one, which I was thinking about um, when I was complaining about the length of novels was, was Kate Hartfield's The Embroidered Book, which is about, I don't know, seven or 800 pages long. And I started reading it. It turns out Kate listens to the podcast. And I thought, that's so sweet. I'm going to start reading the book. And I just fell into it. And I thought, okay, now I'm, now I'm going to review this book. And I don't have enough time. And I've got to spend all this week reading it. And I'm having a lot of fun. So those are the surprises. Nice. When I say I like not being surprised, I'll mention a couple of novels by Old Hands, uh, both British writers, Paul McCauley's Beyond the Burn Line and um, Chris Priest's Expect Me Tomorrow. I know I'm going to get something really original and and brilliant and unexpected from them, but by expecting the unexpected, they're not really unexpected. Um, so hmm. I, was, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was not really surprised to see a terrific new Chris, Chris Priest novel. Um, but I was glad to see it, and it was uh, it, it was a pleasure to not be disappointed. One of you've been reviewing as long as I have. One of your pleasures is not being disappointed by your old heroes. Um, sometimes it's very true. It's very true. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you look, I mean, one of my long time time pleasures is Guy Gavriel Kay, who deli del delivered all the seas of the world, and it's a great book. So, yeah, very much. You're going to say something, Liza? No, I was wondering what your favorite was. Uh, look, it's it's interesting. I loved, I genuinely loved Neon by Lavi Tidhar. Ah, yes. Lavi has been a revelation over the past ten years, writing a broad variety of books, and it's just a really, really excellent book. Although it's obvious because we talked about it, Spear. Right. I didn't know what to expect from Spear, though I knew Nicola was a wonderful writer, uh, Nicola Griffith, and. I was absolutely engrossed by it at, at every level. And it, it's sort of just barely novel length, so it's like that borderline. But I absolutely loved and adored it. I think it's a fabulous book. Um, I loved The Ballad of Perilous Graves, which is the, which I think is a, what do they call it, a black exploitation version of Pippi Longstocking. <laughs> yeah. Which That's I wouldn't cool. either ever have thought of. But also wouldn't have thought I would have liked. And you know, it tends to be the books where I've, the books that stand out in in terms of books you, I really like are the ones I never really had thought I was going to like, or that never felt like they were going to be homework. There's some books where I felt like I have to read this book, and that's actually not a really healthy attitude to take into reading anything. Like you're like, oh, this writer yeah. whose work I love, I've got to write, read it again. And then you get to the <laughs> point where you think, I don't want to read a 35th book by them anymore. Well, right. But, you know, uh, I, I loved um, Boys, Beasts, and Men, the um, the, the collection from uh, Sam Miller Jr. Um, <sighs> yeah, there was just books. And, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't – I wouldn't want to overlook um, some of the novellas. I mean, even though I've got vastly kind of – I mean, here's the point where um, uh, conflict of interest comes to play. I edited and, uh, edited and acquired Pulling the Wings Off Angels by K.J. Parker. But I really mm. loved Pulling the Wings Off Angels by K.J. Parker. That's why I acquired it. It's just, just great. It's a great K.J. Parker book. 
And there's a whole bunch. And there's people I'm, I'm, I still have to read more of. I'm so on the red on Adrian Tchaikovsky and all sorts of other people. So, yeah. I've never well, read yeah. the on it. Well, actually, I, I, I should mention, because Jonathan can't mention this, but one of the most enjoyable anthologies to me was Somewhere in Time because it, it sort of bleeds between science fiction and romance and fantasy, and there are a lot of different approaches to it. Uh, it, it it's, it's a theme anthology, but it's, it's a theme which goes well beyond the genres. And it, it raises an issue which kind of comes up every once in a while, but not very often in science fiction and fantasy. It's an issue that's raised ironically enough, by Elliot de Baudard's Red Scholar's Wake, and that is what is the relationship between romance and the fantastic? Um, and mm. how, are the, how can you approach it this way? I mean, uh, there's, uh, there's not a lot of discussion about this, but romance is a genre that seems completely in a separate area, and yet there were, and Jonathan, you'll have to agree, there were a lot of densely romantic stories uh, in, in, in that mm. In, in the best sense of it, in the, in, in the sense of the classic, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the classic time slip stories of the past. I, I have to say that if you're going to mention one of my books, I, I feel like reflexively and defensively, I must say, there were many great anthologies out this year. I mean, I thought Sheree Renee Thomas and yeah, Pam Morgan and Troy Wiggins' Trouble the Waters was great. Ellen Datlow, who was always great, her Screams from the Dark was fantastic. Zoraida Cordova's Reclaim the Stars was a great book. There was a, uh, The Way Spring Arrives and Other that. Stories, uh, which is a uh, female and, and um, queer uh, science fiction anthology uh, from Tordacom was terrific. Unlimited Futures, there was just a whole bunch. In fact, there's a lot of um, BIPOC anthologies this last year that were outstanding. There's a couple from Australia. Uh, there was obviously Africa Risen. Uh, a whole bunch of things. So it's not, not just my work. I mean, it's always and there were a couple of the most awkward part were, about the, the, the list for me is always where my work appears. What was that? Well, no, <laughs> I, I, I was mentioning that partly because uh, for those of us who enjoy time slip stories and romantic stories in somewhere in time, and if you come away from that book feeling kind of good, then we can go back and look at your Twelve Tomorrows anthology, and that'll totally take care of your good feelings uh, from having read the earlier anthology. That's that's a bunch no, of no one's eating Tom Hanks, Harry. It's it's grim. It's grim. They're, they're, they're grim anyway. in their romantic futures, but nevertheless. Anyway, anyway, we're over our hour. Liza has people to feed and animals who are demanding time. And it appears almost as though the power has gone out where she is, which is kind of alarming. So we should probably get ready to let her go. But just as, as, a, as a wind up, um, the awards are in in, in the future. Is this a point in time yeah. where we can kind of like would would normally hope to be drawing breath a little bit? This issue's out, and that it's like feels like it's the the big Megillah issue of the year. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that happens is you know you work really hard on something, and everything else just gets pushed down down the track a little, and so there's a little bit of there's a big sigh of relief that it's done, and then there's like oh you know don't turn around too quickly because there's a big pile of work right behind you <laughs> so it's i don't think that there's a there's a really a vacation coming up in my no. future but there is the having this having the fundraiser done having this part done i mean honestly the next tricky bit is the locust awards because our the hotel we used to have a locust awards in closed down entirely okay. and we used to do it in uh some partnership with Clarion West who were great and they had a party every week and we would join up with them and share their party. Um, and they are virtual because they cannot find anywhere to house their students. And so they are doing virtual Clarion West. And so now we're at the part where we're trying to figure out what the Locus Awards will look like, which I was also talking about in October, but then fundraising got in the way. But um, I think we're going to try to do a different kind of hybrid instead of saying we're going to have a convention and we're going to have streaming, that we're going to have something that looks like our online convention from the last three years, but that we will have an event for the awards themselves. Excellent. So have 
the online part that everybody can sign up for like they did before and they get a t-shirt and they can, we have a bunch of readings from finalists and we have panels and all this stuff and then stream the event, but then locally here somewhere, find a place where we can have a reception, a banquet, a celebration for the local sewers. And the people like who want, if they want to come to that, they can. We have enough of a local community that we can throw a big party here and celebrate all of you. Um, and, and, and and while we're at it, before we actually sign off, there's a tallying of the votes, which means that we might remind people that anyone can vote in the Locus Awards this year. Yes. Go and vote at the Locus Awards. Go to the site. There's two big buttons. One button shows you the recommended list, and on there there's a link to the voting. And the other big button says vote in the uh, vote in the poll and survey, and that is the voting for the Locus Awards. So, and anybody can do it. It's an open system. So go and vote. Subscribe if you want to subscribe. That's even better. But um, yeah, let us know what you want, and then we can all celebrate who wins the Locus Awards in June. Great. We'll look forward to it. Okay, cool. Well, it was really good to talk to you guys again this year about Yieldy List. So Absolutely. thank you for inviting me. All right. Always good to talk to you. And until I guess we'll see you down the road. Go ahead and finish your thought. I was just going to say, uh, well, I guess we'll see you down the road somewhere, like in, you know, at a convention somewhere down the road. Oh, I'll be yes, out, I'll come, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll come out to California sometime. I can, I can get there much more easily than Jonathan can. Um, right. But until, okay. we, until we talk again, this has been another issue of the uh, Cood Street podcast. I almost said Locust podcast, but it was. <laughs> but it's the Cood Street podcast. Right.